Welcome to Frontline Defenders Rights on the Line podcast, presenting the voices, perspectives, and experiences of human rights defenders at risk and focusing on human rights issues across the globe. My name is Mary Moynihan and I am a writer, poet, theatre and filmmaker and artistic director of the Smiting Times International Centre for the Arts and Equality and artistic curator of the annual Dublin Arts and Human Rights Festival. It is my pleasure to interview Mary Lawler, the current Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders with the United Nations. Mary, can you tell me about the Declaration of Human Rights Defenders and about your role as Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders with the UN? Yes, um, the Declaration on Human Rights Defenders was adopted 25 years ago in 1998 by consensus and uh, it really is a political commitment by governments um, to protect the right to defend human rights. It doesn't grant new rights, it just brings together all the rights that were already there and, and groups them together. So for me uh, to uh, carry out the mandate, what I have to do is, first of all, I have to implement the Declaration on Human Rights Defenders. And that, that is really any person, a human rights defender is any person who promotes or protects human rights or fundamental freedoms. Um, and it can be, as I said, an individual or an organisation. So to do that, uh, what I am mandated to do is, first of all, to uh, keep in touch with human rights defenders, uh, follow the trends of uh, violations against them and what's happening to them and come up with some protection strategies or some possibilities that will enhance their protection. Um, I also uh, do what they call formal communications. Um, uh, they're, sorry, they're called communications, but they're in fact formal letters where I take up cases of human rights defenders because I take a people-centred approach and I write to the offending government and I ask them questions about the defender or the group of defenders that I'm um, concerned about and they get 60 days to respond and they're supposed to answer my questions um, but oftentimes you'll get a blah blah response or you'll get no response and sometimes you do get a good response. I then follow up in person. I lobby um, ambassadors, ministries of foreign affairs. I think I've had 177 meetings since I started um, or something like that. I've certainly talked to over 14,000 human rights defenders since I started the mandate. And um, the other few things that the mandate has to do is two country visits a year. Last year, I went to Greece to look at the situation of defenders of migrants, refugees and asylum seekers because mm -hmm. they're all being criminalized. And Tajikistan, which is a central, centrally, uh, uh, power is centralized in the president, no space for activities of human rights defenders and complete targeting with huge long sentences. And this year I'm going to Georgia and Algeria before Christmas. So they're my country visits this, this year. And then I have to do a report to the General Assembly and a report to the Human Rights Council. And when I started, I decided on my priorities. So I try and mirror my priority through with the report. So the first report I did was on killings of human rights defenders, because we know over 400 human rights defenders are killed all over the world every year. 
and indeed I also made reference to how threats can move offline to physical attacks online and then set up the environment for somebody to be killed even though it does it's it's not always happening but it does sometimes happen so that was the first report then I did a, a report on long-term imprisonment because I think long-term imprisonment is one of the cruelest cruelest violations against human rights offender I wrote to uh, 24 or so states, 148 uh, human rights defenders for whom we could get consent because some of them had been in prison for over 20 years and we couldn't get consent for any for any of them because either their lawyers were no longer there, their families were split up or whatever. So um, the kind of countries that are having peak, holding people for longer than 10 years, which I took as my baseline, are countries like Turkey, like Iran, like China, like Vietnam. There's one man in China who's been in prison for 33 years. And in the Gulf we have, uh, in Bahrain, in um, UAE, and uh, Saudi Arabia, and indeed in UAE and Saudi Arabia, there are defenders there who's, who have actually served their sentences, but are still being held, they won't release them. So the other priorities that I did reports on were anti-corruption human rights defenders and um, uh, defenders of refugees, migrants and asylum seekers. And my last report, which was the happy report, was on successes of human rights defenders in the last uh, 20, 25 years. Um, that's extraordinary work that you're doing. And it's interesting you say a people-centred approach um, and the fact that over 400 human rights defenders are killed every year. As part of your work, you have a long history of working with human rights defenders and you were the original founder of Frontline Defenders, which is an international organisation with the specific aim of protecting human rights defenders. Tell me about how you set up Frontline Defenders. What inspired you and how has the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Defenders impacted on that work? The work you've done with Frontline prior to that and since? Well you have uh, kind of three questions there because for me uh, when you talk about the UN Declaration on Human Rights Defenders which is the instrument that was adopted 25 years ago um, I was actually in Amnesty International as director then and I was in Paris at the Paris summit when the declaration was announced. We had a great party that night. Um, uh, the Latin Americans were all um, the, the singing, uh, you know, uh, that wonderful song, the people united will never be defeated. And nobody went to bed. And uh, it was a meeting of human rights defenders from all over the world um, uh, in the Paris summit. Amnesty had organized it together with um, Madame Mitterrand's organization and ADT Fourth World and uh, uh, FEDH. And I was there um, and it had a huge impression on me. It, it really did because I see human rights defenders are the uh, as the people who breathe life into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so all the rights that are in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are the rights that human rights defenders work on. And in the Declaration on Human Rights Defenders, it uh, gives them legitimacy and uh, to defend these rights 
that are in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and other international instruments. So anyway, I was there in, in, in Paris. Uh, it was a most amazing meeting. I remember there were coloured badges for the defenders in risk. At risk, they had uh, one colour and for the rest of us, they had another colour. And uh, I, I, I spent the time listening and talking to human rights defenders uh, who had been targeted for one reason or another and who were present in Paris at the, the uh, Human Rights Defenders Summit in 1998. And that left a lasting impression on me. As well as that, in my work in Amnesty, I had come across uh, a couple of defenders that really inspired me hugely. And I don't use the word ins inspire easily. I remember this little, he was a, a very old brother in uh, in Brazil, Brother Henri, he was called, and um, he worked up in the Amazon with um, uh, with uh, uh, communities there. And I remember him coming into me and in sitting in front of me, just like you are uh, in Amnesty, and he was talking about what was happening to his communities as he saw them, his communities, and um, he at one stage uh, he kind of half rose out of the chair you know he was so so engaged in what he was telling me and then he suddenly realized that he had kind of half stood up and he said forgive me it's the spirit talking and i actually think that that is what makes human rights defenders so wonderful it is something of the spirit that they refuse to accept injustice uh, and work for the rights of other people. Uh, not themselves, uh, they can include themselves as part of it, but they are always working peacefully for the rights of other people. So between the people I met in Amnesty and the people I met at the Paris Summit for Human Rights Defenders, I really wanted to work um, full-time on Human Rights Defenders in a different way because Amnesty is a great organisation, but it had everything from fair trials to death penalty uh, to women's rights to uh, children's rights uh, to extrajudicial executions and it wasn't concentrating much on human rights defenders at that stage and it seemed to me that you needed an organization that would be fast flexible and furious mm -hmm. that that was my motto uh, that would uh, that would respond very quickly to people who were in danger because of their human rights work and that's what I wanted to do as well as that I kind of felt you know it was time for me to leave Amnesty I've been there for about 30 years so you know it's about time so but that really it was it was um, for me you see human rights defenders when you strip everything away it's human rights defenders on the ground who are the people who are working to build civil and just societies. And they're the ones who can empower their communities. They can mobilize people. They have a better understanding than others of what's going on and they deserve to be protected. And yeah, that's extraordinary work you're doing. And I love that fast, flexible and furious <laughs> and the idea of responding quickly. Um, and, and how does it feel now having achieved so much looking at where you're at and, and seeing how like Frontline Defenders is an extraordinary international organisation and very successful in what it's doing. So how do you feel having built the organisation up and seeing other organisations who've grown thinking about where they start 
And do you feel that those organisations are getting the support they need in the work they do? Well, I feel very privileged to have been given the opportunity to start Frontline, to be honest, because it was something that I really wanted to do. And in order to do it, I had to have a vision. I had to do a strategic plan. I had to get money. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, some, like the vision is always easy. It's the implementation of the vision that can be quite difficult because you have to put in place the, the bits that you need. So, um, so I was very fortunate in that I was able to get money. I had a vision and I knew what I wanted and we developed a strategic plan. And I am so proud of all the people who work in Frontline. All, not just now, but the people from the word go who contributed to building frontline defenders into a successful and effective organization and i see it uh, and i see other uh, organizations on the ground in different uh, parts of the world um uh, you know and they don't have access to funding and they don't have access to um international i suppose advocacy channels often um, and uh, they're struggling, but they keep trying. And you find human rights defenders in all these organizations. And it is, it is so powerful to see how they continue to work. And there are more people doing human rights work now than ever before. But I think the, 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 the added value that organ, international organizations can bring is to bring the voices of human rights defenders to the international community. So organisations like Frontline and Amnesty and FEDH and Reporters Sans Frontières and all, all the various international organisations, they're in a position um, to bring the voices of human rights defenders to the international community in the hope that they will receive the protection they need. And I see myself as a bridge between human rights defenders and the international community. I take their voices and uh, but I have because I have access, uh, I am able to concentrate a lot on on um, uh, you know uh, states, and it really is states at the end of the day that will make a difference as to whether human rights defenders are protected. NGOs can't do that, but states, I mean, they can lobby states, mm -hmm. but it's up to states at the end of the day. They're the ones responsible. Okay. Um, I, you talk about the spirit of the human rights defender and at the heart of all this is the person on the ground and their spirit in refusing to accept injustice and I would love to talk a bit more about what drives a human rights defender but before we do that we might just mention you refer to it as your happy report and as UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders you have brought out this report outlining the achievements of human rights defenders since the declaration was first introduced so maybe just tell us briefly what stands out for you over the past 25 years as those major successes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I really love doing that report because all the reports, as anyone who works in human rights know, it's always about the awful atrocities and cruelties done to people. So it was lovely for me to be able to um, uh, uh, shine a light on the successes of human rights defenders all around the world. 
And you see, when because I started in COVID and because I was doing so many meetings with human rights defenders uh, every, pretty much every day, uh, I was doing at least two, um, it, it was very difficult for me when I'd go onto, the, uh, onto, the, onto Zoom or whatever it was, that uh, I'd know who they were, where they were, and they talked to you as if you, they knew, they thought you knew their village or their town. <laughs> and all I knew was their country, you know, and uh, their situation and all of that. So I said, we can't go on like this to, to my, my people, my team. And uh, I said, we need a, a very small questionnaire, not a big one, a small one that just says their name, their organization, if they have one, their contact details, what they're working on. And then I added in their allies, because I'm a great believer in allies. And and my my famous one, which I tried in front line, but nobody ever paid blind, blind bit of notice to me, was small victories of which they were proud of. Any victories they had. And, and we got so much information from that those questionnaires that when it got to writing the report, we had a lot of information. And then the procedure is that you, you have a call for proposals. So yeah, uh, the people who want to input into the report, they send you in their stuff and then you decide what you can, uh, what you can manage to put into it because reports are a certain length. But I suppose what I've seen over the last 25 years is a real, um, a real improvement in LGBTI rights, for example. And we've seen it here in Ireland even. Um, and I remember in June I had a meeting with uh, young people who are human rights defenders and children who are human rights defenders. And there was one young man from Botswana and he was by himself. And he lived with his mother and he was gay. And he took a case himself. His mother was terrified uh, to see if he could get homosexuality uh, decriminalized and he succeeded. So that was, that, and, and there have been other countries around the world that have, uh, have um, decriminalized uh, uh, homosexuality or, um, you know, uh, or gender soggy related stuff. Um, so, uh, so that's one thing. They're women. I mean, women, of course, are still targeted not only for who they are, but for what they do. But I think that uh, the fact that uh, you see women now so networked um, all around the world and uh, working on uh, the issues of women's rights and other rights that are so important and you see them in the forefront of so many human rights movements and uh, they, they've won significant victories you know they, i mean one of the one of the uh, things from my report was a group of women in yemen it's called the abductee mothers association and they were working with both sides uh, to try and find people who had been abducted relatives and friends who, and community members who had been abducted by one side or the other. And they have had success in that they have found scores of people and reunited some of them. So that, that was huge for me in a country like Yemen, which was riven by, you know, war. And then if you look at environmental rights, you know, we, we, we know that it is in the context of land, environmental and indigenous rights that most defenders are killed but they have for decades been uh, talking about uh, 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 
climate and uh, environment, like deforestation, like pollution of air, soil and water, land grabs. I mean, the very first report I did in, in, in um, Frontline was about Brazil and it was about land grabs. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, it was a book on human rights defenders who were fighting against all sorts of issues. But one of them was the land grabs by huge landowners and I have never forgotten it. The way the landowner, you know, they would take land even bigger than Holland uh, in uh, in some cases uh, that wasn't theirs. And the way they used to falsify the documents is they would get crickets and, and paper and they would put it in a little box and leave it there until the paper yellowed. And, and then they would produce that as proof of ownership. Unbelievable stuff. So, um, so, but you know, without the people who've been working on environment and indigenous rights um, for so long, uh, I don't think we would have had the focus that we now have on the environment and climate change. Um, so there are a couple of examples. No, there are extraordinary examples. Um, and, uh, you know, it's important, I suppose, around human rights that we have to talk about the the atrocities that are happening and the difficulties that are happening, but also to celebrate human rights. Mm. And as you said, what human rights defenders are doing. And maybe you could touch a little again on the idea of the spirit of the human rights defender, because it requires extraordinary courage and bravery for what they do. And how do they do that? Well, I suppose, I'm trying to think back, you know, when I started Frontline, I always remember, um, Oh, now I can't remember her name. I think that she was in Tunisia. She was a lawyer, a woman lawyer. I actually went to see her. Um, and uh, she had been um, she had been working on uh, torture, uh, against torture. And she had been arrested herself and imprisoned. And, uh, you know, she was delivering her baby and she was brought to the hospital and she was um, handcuffed to the bed in case she tried to escape, just as she was about to, you know, give birth. Uh, and I was, I was, I was, I can see her in my mind. I was so impressed by it. And her 13 year old was being followed by security and harassed by security going to school. She had a, she had a huge effect on me because it was also about, you know, uh, how she managed to, try and help her uh, her people as as well as uh, make sure her children were safe in a case that all had a huge impression on on me was someone we brought to frontline was um um uh, madawi in sudan and i'm talking to him pretty much once once a week he's in khartoum at the moment and as you know in sudan there's um there's a, a serious conflict and a lot of killings and atrocities going on and Madawi is in Khartoum and he won't leave and he won the Frontline Prize in 2005 and I just took to him straight away he's an engineer by profession he had been uh, imprisoned several times he'd been held in solitary confinement he had been held on open ground in freezing weather and in scorching weather when he was in solitary confinement, he was dying to talk to anyone and he'd try and talk to the guards when they came, but they wouldn't talk to him, he'd been tortured. And he still did his work all through Darfur the last time. He was up there trying to um, 
trying to highlight the uh, the uh, atrocities being done and also um, teach the people their rights and he so he was the first person who taught me how to explain the link between economic social cultural civil and political rights um, you know that you can't have one without the other and he he actually worked on he's as he's a engineer by profession he was actually working on water as well and uh, but so Madawi Madawi is to this day one of my um, people I like a guiding star you know um, and uh, he he just never gives up you know and he's he's quite a you know he'd be probably about 60 now so you'd imagine he'd want to rest you know um, after all the trouble he's been in but no he doesn't um, and then Natalia Estimarova we, we brought her over to Frontline in uh, for rest and respite with her daughter and uh, and she learnt English while she was there and I remember meeting her in London we were both speaking at a meeting after she went back and she told me she thought she was safer now and this was a woman whose child um, had to be sent to her, live with her, live with her aunt because during the war in Grozny, Natalia put, uh, she, she actually pinned the aunt's address onto the little girl's mm. coat in case anything happened to her. And of course the Chechen soldiers were in the same building and they were very um, um, you couldn't trust them and they were drunk and um, more than disorderly but so she sent the little girl to live Lana Estimarova to live in her in her aunt's house and then a few months after I spoke to Natasha when she told me she was all right she was murdered she was uh, she was killed on her way to work and her body was found um, a couple of hours away uh, two bullets, one to her head and one, one to her heart. And Lana has actually written a book about her mother now and it will be published next year. Um, so uh, I, I could talk all day about, you know, but that kind of spirit, you know, you talk about spirit. It's, uh, it's something uh, that drives, I think it's partially to do, to do with, you know, when you know about it, injustice, it's difficult to turn away and um especially if you think there's something uh, effective you can do and for many of these human rights defenders in situations where there is such injustice uh, there is something that drives them you know out of a sense of right and wrong and justice and injustice and uh, this this uh, huge um, desire to try and improve um, I suppose the lives of others definitely that seems to be um, you know it, it's almost like a common factor that sense of dignity they have for the world and for other people and and this striving for justice to make the world a better place not just for themselves for other people um, you, you did mention Natalia and we are you know I have I am working on a play with frontline defenders on smashing talents and she's one of the stories that we're telling um, and her daughter writing the book because the importance of making sure that we continue to shine a light on these stories and tell these stories. Um, I'd like to ask you, because you mentioned allies, um, in terms of supporting human rights defenders, to maybe just talk to me about how you would describe the, the 
I suppose, the protection that human rights defenders are getting, first of all, at, at, at international level in terms of the EU or the African Union, and maybe at state level and... Um, well, it's very patchy because every government is driven by its political and strategic interests. So they all have their own little list and they will uh, take up cases of, uh, you know, I mean, everyone would take up uh, somebody now in Russia or Ukraine, um, you know, in the West. Um, um, so, or, you know, but, but it comes down to where their strategic interests lie. So you don't have any government, no government in the world that will take a consistent, principled, um, uh, impartial approach to the protection of human rights defenders. There are people who are better than others. There is no doubt about that. And like, for example, for me, with Afghanistan, Germany was way out in front of, uh, of any, other, um, any other state. I wrote to all the uh, states that technically say they support human rights defenders and I have a, an informal contact group of states that agree to take cases from me every, every month. Only the, out of that, uh, nobody came back except Spain, who took a couple, and Germany. Uh, the others, even Canada, you know, and everybody says Canada's great. I wrote to Canada, they referred me to their website. I said it's an exceptional exceptional uh, uh, situation uh, can you make a um, can you make a uh, an exception and and uh, to take defenders directly from afghanistan rather than them having to be in uh, and uh, that they didn't get anywhere with that um, ireland was very good as well uh, with defenders from um, afghanistan through frontline um, and and then there are other things that you see thing about human rights is it's all about little incremental steps so I was in Finland last week they've updated their um, guidelines on human rights defenders which are very good Norway has done the same but what I really liked about Finland was they put in indicators which means that their um, their um, their officials are technically supposed uh, to uh, use these indicators and abide by them. Now, whether it happens or not is another thing, but at least they're there. It's the first set of guidelines I've ever seen that has uh, indicators. Now, Mongolia is a country that you wouldn't expect, and they've brought in a really good human rights defender um, um, uh, protection law. Now, when it comes to states, it depends on the commitment of the person in, in, the, in the embassy. And we've had really good examples of ambassadors, for example, um, doing stuff. Um, so there was a group of ambassadors in Burundi a couple of years ago that brought a defender to the airport after he was released from prison. I remember after the six, um, oh God, the six organizations in uh, uh, Palestine were deemed to be terrorist. Ireland took the lead and brought together with the EU all the other states um, to have a meeting with these six organizations and to show their support for them and um, and then there's 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 other examples but it's always down to individuals you know so I would say a it depends on whether the co the, the, the country 
has a consistent, uh, if you're talking about, you know, um, the EU, if an EU member state has a consistent, um, uh, impartial human rights policy to protect human rights defenders, not driven by its political in interests, and I would argue, no, they don't. Um, when it comes to, they do have the EU guidelines, which I actually wrote the first uh, the first uh, um, consultation document in 2004 under the Irish presidency, which was subsequently adopted. And that has really gone from strength to strength. There's no doubt about it. But I'm talking about advocacy because that is my big thing. You know, like international organisations like Frontline have, uh, 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 you know, they, they take a holistic approach to protection. So they give uh, emergency grants and uh, it, uh, uh, facilitate networking and uh, do training in personal and digital security. I don't do any of that, but what I focus on is trying to get states to protect human rights defenders. So, uh, so when it comes to that, when you have oppressive states, I mean, sometimes we get the odd breakthroughs, um, but it is, and I always think success is collective. I think we all have a part to play in success. I think it's a, the local NGO or the local um, human rights defender has, uh, has to be um, uh, reached out to by international organisations like Frontline and others. And, and then they, they mobilise, they bring the information to the international community. Somebody like myself takes that information and goes after states with it, both the oppressive states and in cases you ask about the EU, the EU, uh, the African Commission, uh, and uh, it, it, there are some good examples of laws in Africa where Cote d'Ivoire has brought in a law, Burkina Faso has brought in a law, and Mali have brought in a law uh, to protect human rights defenders. Implementation, of course, is uh, patchy, but at least the law is there. It's a start, and it's being discussed in various other countries, including the DRC where it is stalled at the moment and in Philippines where it's stalled at the moment. But uh, that we need stuff like that to start to, to push for. Uh, when it comes to Latin America, they have a more robust set of protection mechanisms. The Inter-American uh, Commission on Human Rights has <coughs> a dedicated um, um, uh, part for uh, human rights defenders and they also order precautionary measures of protection if if a defender is in danger so um it, would it be correct to say so for so say somebody who doesn't know much about human rights or human rights because sometimes you often find when you talk to people they think human rights has nothing to do with them or they might not be aware of what's happening around the work of human rights defenders but uh, like are you talking on one level about a law in a country to make it yeah. binding for governments to say we must protect human rights and we must protect the human rights defenders who stand up for those rights? Well, it's a law to protect human rights defenders. Human rights is very broad. I have nothing to do with human rights nowadays. I mean, obviously the defenders, as I say, breed life into the declaration, the UN Declaration on, on Human Rights, which is 75 years old this year. It was the thing that created the, you know, the bringing together of the states in the, in the UN. But, um, but for me, 
um, I think what governments have to do is they have to put in, it's not rocket science, they have to put in laws and policies to protect human rights defenders. They have to publicly acknowledge their credible work and not work to undermine them. And if they even started by that, it would go so far. It would, you know, protect a lot more people. Mm. And that's the work then that would need to be done going forward in terms of, like, obviously at EU level and and state level. Well, there are guidelines uh, in the EU, but they need to be implemented. Mm. I mean, the guidelines actually spell out what individual member states are supposed to do to protect human rights defenders at local level. But as I said, it depends on who's in the embassy at local level and if they're interested in human rights defenders and if they, uh, if, if they take action. Which is a shocking situation and is part of sometimes what's wrong with society that rather than being open and transparent and embedded in our society, it's dependent on individuals. Mm. Um, and so it sounds like, because it's the same then with businesses, because I, I, I know that you're interested in working with the whole idea of how businesses can play a role in protecting and promoting um, safety for human rights defenders. Again, what do you see there as what, what has been achieved and what needs to be done? Well, <laughs> I keep saying well, don't I? Um, but the one good thing on the horizon is this EU directive on a mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence, which if it goes through, and at the moment we've been lobbying so hard, I think I've spent so much time all over Europe, not all over, but in at least four or five countries and in Brussels repeatedly lobbying to get human rights defenders uh, uh, named as a, a stakeholder in this EU directive, meaning that they have to be consulted mm. um, when risks are being examined uh, before a company, um, you know, whatever project it is going to do, they have to consult human rights defenders. They, they have to ask them about the risks uh, that uh, you know they might face um, and also in their due diligence uh, process because human rights defenders are the ones that will be able to tell them mm-hmm. you know how risky their business is going to be in terms of you know uh, human rights and environment and uh, and then they have to put in place measures um, uh, to prevent retaliation against defenders raising concerns and at the moment, the directive is going in the right way. Now there is a, it's supposed to come out next year, early this next year. Now they're in the final stages of it, and and the the, the real I suppose half fear is that it won't get through before the next election of the um, uh, parliament, and we need it to get through, um, because although attacks on human rights defenders. Uh, aren't it's not always business that attack human rights defenders but uh, the business and human rights resource center which is the uh, most well-known and best uh, organization working on business and human rights um, they've documented over 4,000 cases uh, of retaliation against human rights defenders since 2016 and 10 uh, and sorry Uh, 10% of those are linked to companies in the EU so that would be a big win if we could if this directive goes through it's 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 um 
it it would be a huge uh, a huge game changer i think it's a good start but as i said business as as i said a few minutes ago they have to they have to consult with human rights defenders about risks they have to make sure they don't retaliate uh, against human rights defenders if they raise concerns and they have to see them as legitimate um, uh, uh, partners and include them in their due diligence process. Now there was one very good thing last Friday, Unilever, which is a huge company. They produced, I was, where was I? It was in Helsinki I think or somewhere. Anyway, wherever I was, just popped up and it was a new policy on uh, uh, a guidance document uh, on the protection of human rights defenders. It's 50 pages long. I mean, I read it over the weekend. It, they've gone to an awful lot of trouble. And there are other good examples of big companies like Adidas that have uh, good protection uh, policies for in, uh, human rights defenders, even going as far as raising cases. You know, So that's the kind of thing that business... Uh, business um, uh, needs to do. There's also been a good development lately within the EU, the Aarhus Convention, you know, which protects the right to uh, uh, live in a clean and healthy environment. And there's three pillars to that, access to information, public participation in decision-making, and, and justice in environmental matters. And that, that is huge work that's happening and it's very important, but again, it goes back to this thing that it's not enough to just say it and have the policies that has to be there has to be um, uh, indicators, like you said, in place to make it actually happen and to make businesses and states accountable. Um, and that's a, a necessary um, focus to put on because, you know, you talk about um, the environmental, um, that the, the indigenous communities and the way they're using their lands. And I know Betty Karina is somebody that you have supported and spoke about in the past. But research is showing that there's links between companies from Canada, from the US and from Europe that are linked to what's happening around taking the lands from indigenous communities. So again, highlighting these, um, highlighting what's happening and then putting things in place like directives is mm. very important as we mm. go forward. Um, I, I'd love to ask you, if you were to say to an ordinary citizen, what can they do? How can they get involved? What I think the first thing to do is to inform themselves to really look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is 75 years old this year, and then read the Declaration on Human Rights Defenders, which is 25 years old, which allows people, and everyone should be a human rights defender, to defend the rights of other people, and to see what it is they're interested in. You don't have to be in danger to be a human rights defender. You can be defending rights uh, you know, of people uh, in whatever sphere you want. It can be women's rights, it can be children's rights, it can be um, uh, working against poverty, it can be working against homelessness, it can be working for fair trials, it can be working against torture. There are so many options and it is so easy to get involved in human rights. And I can tell you that I started in the 70s and there were very few people working in human rights then. But today, I, there's a great website that kind of tracks um, uh, people working in um, human rights and um, civil society. And there's over 10 million NGOs now around the world. And in Kenya, for example, m m m civil society is all under 24 years old. Well, not all 
under, but the majority is under 24, which for me is so important. And that's why I did uh, the consultation with the children and the young fitter, because long after I'm in the ground, it's the people who are young now that will carry the human rights movement forward, like you. <laughs> well, well, that brings me to the question, because you are passionate about recognising children as human rights defenders, and, and tell me why that's important to you. Well, as I said, you know, um, in uh, uh, we've had 25 years of the declaration. The human rights uh, movement has been growing and growing and growing. We need to make sure that uh, children and young people are properly included in, um, in uh, the work to protect human rights. And at the moment, young people don't feel they have access. They don't feel they've been listened to. They don't feel they get legal assistance. They don't feel they get international support. They don't feel even in NGOs that they, they have a, 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 a legitimate voice in some cases, not always. They don't get funding. Um, and they, uh, they don't have opportunities to learn from other defenders. And as well as that, there were a lot of them in, in, uh, in Vienna where I organized this meeting a few months ago. Uh, I had 30 young people under 32, which is the UN age for being young. And I had 10 children, which was under 18. I had a 12 year old, I had a 13 year old, I had two, you know, 12 and the 13, one, uh, Francesco was 13, uh, is 13, and he had to leave Colombia because of his work on the environment. He was getting death threats, he's in Spain at the moment. And uh, the 12-year-old uh, the is working in Ecuador on climate education in her school, you see. And this is the kind of thing people start with. Uh, Patience and her sister in, in Uganda, they're doing uh, climate. Um, so Moldova, there's a young fellow that's doing bullying in schools. And um, uh, there were, there were um, other children who were involved in... Um, uh, forced marriage um, of underage mm -hmm. children. So, so, so oh, like there's an organization in Bangladesh uh, which works with the, a children's organization that works with the local uh, police commissioner or not police commissioner, some kind of commissioner, don't know what kind, but they work to prevent a child marriage and they have been successful in, you know, again, at least uh, I, I can't tell you the figure, but I think it was certainly uh, in multiple, multiple of 10, I'm not sure how many, but they have been successful. And that's an extraordinary thing for children to be doing. Um, so uh, so when it gets to children and, you know, and the, the young people, like I'm bringing next week to New York uh, a young woman lawyer who worked with survivors of Boko Haram in Nigeria. She herself is a victim of sexual violence. And not only that, uh, she had about two, she mobilized about 200 um, members of the community to work with her, which is, again, really mind-boggling mind into my mind, because it's such a dangerous environment. Mm. And uh, so, um, uh, and she's working on trying to reintegrate uh, uh, people who have been assaulted, sexually assaulted, or taken as um, child soldiers back into their communities. Um, I think it's interesting that you say everyone should be a human rights defender and that you don't have to be in danger. 
and that would be an important message to get out because I do think we need to start going into schools and working more with young people and, and you know where they can learn about human rights and about the work of human rights defenders um, I, before I before we, I'll finish with a final question which maybe you can maybe tell us what your most outstanding moment from your work is <laughs> but I just wanted to mention because you know I, I'm working with artists uh, and we're working with artists who support human rights and you were instrumental in setting up the memorial that's in the Ivy Gardens in Dublin and Ireland as a physical space where people can go and pay tribute to human rights defenders. Maybe just talk a little bit about that because this year we're going to be presenting a performance in the space to raise awareness of that memorial and the fact it's there and the stories behind it. I'm so sorry I'm not going to miss that because I'll be away. Um, but I was so proud of this because I retired, you know, in 2016 from Frontline. And it was hard. I mean, there's no getting around it. It was hard. But uh, I had been thinking about it for a few years. And um, I remember reading this, uh, this report on women human rights defenders. And uh, one of the things really struck me was uh, founders never know when to go. <laughs> so it stayed in my brain and my daughter who uh, who also has been working in human rights she kept saying to me mom you've got to go you've got to go you just have to go you have to go you have to go so anyway it took me two years to decide to go but I went but I needed something you know to tide me over like not tide me over but uh um I suppose something that could I could still be involved Transition. in in some way so I hit upon that because killings and, you know, when I was director, killings and long-term imprisonment were the two things I really felt we should concentrate on. So, because uh, uh, killing should be a red line of, of peaceful people who are defending human rights. But so I, I, uh, I worked, uh, it, was, it was really extraordinary. It, it took three years. It was, I couldn't believe that a little bit of ground uh, could take uh, so many meetings. We had meetings with 13 people at a time. We had them from OPW, we had them uh, with parks, we had them with surveyors, we had them with engineers, we had them with arborologists, we had them with just about everybody. But I wrote, after I retired, I wrote to two women architects, um, that uh, Grafton architects, um, because I really admired their work. And I asked them, uh, would they be willing to design something? And I told them what I want, uh, you know, what I wanted, and would they be able to do it at cost? <laughs> and uh, they came back and they said, yeah, they do it for pro, pro bono. They're, you know, themselves. And uh, excellent. And uh, so then myself and Yvonne Farrell, we we went all around Dublin looking at sites, and I didn't want it. I I know it's important for art to be accessible everywhere. But I didn't want the memorial to be out where nobody would probably see it. <laughs> so uh, eventually um, uh, uh, it transpired between OPW and I went to Foreign Affairs and uh, I got a, a buy-in from the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney at the time. And uh, that we and OPW, which owns the Garden of Foreign Affairs, and they agreed to have that last, uh, where the memorial is now, they would give us that uh, for the memorial. And they would do the site work on it. So that, to me, was manna from heaven. So I set about fundraising for the rest of the stuff. You know, the, you know, the home stones and the... So I did all that. So I, I fundraised for that and I got it. And... Um, 
and then I looked for um, quotes, you know, human rights defenders, you know, they're not all charismatic, they're not all coming up with wonderful, uh, wonderful quotes or wonderful this or that, you know, and we all know that sometimes when you get them to talk, they'll talk forever and they don't actually answer what you want them to ask, answer. But I searched for, I thought of people I knew and I searched for quotes that I had in my own email or, or online, and I, you know, and I got help from Jim Lochran, and uh, between us, uh, we selected quotes um, that I felt spoke to the spirit of human rights defenders. That's really what I wanted. I didn't want somebody saying I'm just doing this work because I think it's the right thing to do. You know, I wanted somebody. I wanted to try and capture their spirit. So that's what we did. Anyway, three years later, in the middle of COVID, it, it was all done. And um, it, it and it's my second one. The first one was the one I did for Amnesty. You know, the flame just there near Bosaris. Oh, yes. Uh, I did that as well. So, um, yeah. So, and I've got a poem now, uh, just so you know, Mary, because you're the, the one <laughs> who loves anything to do with the arts. Um, we commissioned a poem from Nikita Gill for the 25th anniversary of um, uh, the Declaration. And we will have to think about a launch for it um, coming up to the Declaration. So I'm just telling you that. So, uh, yeah, I think the arts are really important. I just think, you know, it's a way into people. It's a way. And I've heard such feedback from ordinary people. When I say ordinary people, ordinary people that aren't involved in human rights. There was a young fellow that I knew who was a friend of my son who said he now walks every so often through Ivy Gardens so he can go in and have a quiet moment in the memorial. And I thought that was great, you know. The other great thing about it is, you may not have noticed, but there's a gate going into the back garden of, of Ivy House. And uh, so the idea is that the public uh, can go to the garden, any the memorial garden, anytime they want and, uh, you know, be there. But if the, if Ivy Gardens, sorry, if Ivy House, if the minister is having any reception, they will close that gate and they will open the gate into the back garden of the Department of Foreign Affairs. And last week I was in there and they have done up the garden. I knew this was in their plan, mm -hmm. but I couldn't believe they had actually done it up and, you know, re, re, whatever you do to gardens. Mm -hmm. Anyway, re-landscaped it or re-something it. Anyway, it's all set for receptions now, the back garden of Ivy House. So when they have a reception, they're going to open up the gate. And for me, it was really important to have this because it means that the Irish government is committing uh, uh, to the protection of human rights defenders on an ongoing basis as part of its priority in its foreign policy. It's already there in the, in the white paper, but it means it, it, it's, it's there now, whether they like it or not. And that's, a, that, that's brilliant, and that's a lovely story, um, and well done on that, because it is wonderful to have that memorial there. And as you said, the arts are really important. And, and the other thing about it is, you know, when they have their, um, when they have their uh, uh, receptions, uh, you know, you always get a, a lot of ambassadors at it too. So, you know, if they go down, they, it will be a nudge as well. I mean, we all know with human rights, it's just step by step, you know. Yeah, um, uh, well, it's brilliant and, it, and it's great as well. But best to look with the poetry as well because, um, as you know, I'm a great supporter of using the arts for human <laughs> rights. 
So maybe we'll finish by, if you would like to share with us, maybe one or two, what are the most outstanding moments? I think you've already told us so many outstanding things that you've been doing and it's wonderful work that you do. Maybe share with us some of your most outstanding moments from your work with human rights and human rights defenders over the years. Right, well I got involved through Sean McBride who won the Nobel Peace Prize, the American Medal Justice and the Lenin Peace Prize and that was in the 70s and he he was somebody that I thought was amazing because he was my age now but he was he I remember collecting him uh, from um, uh, Russia and it was about uh, midnight and uh, uh, I was making conversation uh, from the airport into his house and um, uh, I said so what you know so what were you doing and blah 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 and he says do you really want to know and I said yes I felt I had to and um, uh, I liked him very much but you know he, he was he, he wasn't an easy um, conversationalist you know he was a very serious man so anyway uh, so he told me about it and I always remember he said you know uh, he said uh, well I knew they were going to take me seriously because when you go to Russia um, uh, you either get tickets for the ballet or tickets for the circus if you are considered to be an important person. So he, he went to the circus. But anyway, uh, so we got back to his house and he asked me would I come in and help him with his post. Now he was in his 70s and I came in and we sat there from about quarter to one until about half three doing his post and he replied to every every single person who had written to him from around the world. And he, he was a huge, um, he really brought me into human rights, to be honest. So that's how I started. So he, he was, you know, he was hugely important. And like then, you know, getting involved in Amnesty was huge. I learned everything I know basically from Amnesty International. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, again, I, I, you know, I was, I, I was ex like, it was hard to leave Amnesty too, and I, uh, I always remember um, leaving and uh, wondering, you know, uh, but I, I knew the time was right, you know, I think one of the things I get right is going before I have to go, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. uh, why people still like me, because I used to see all over the world in NGOs, people, uh, you know, they, 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 people are fed up with them and just are waiting for them to go. <laughs> so I had my spies all around the country in Amnesty and I knew I was still quite liked. So I, that, I went, but I always remember walking down, uh, or the frontline office in, was on Main Street in Blackrock. I looked at 35 offices and uh, I, there were two rooms on Main Street in Blackrock and I, I remember the first day in January, I left Amnesty at Christmas, went to Tunisia for a week, lay in the sun, cleared my mind, came back, set up front line. And uh, I, uh, I went, I remember walking down to Black Rock. Um, I don't know why I was walking. I think I decided it would be a good thing for me to walk. But, um, and I was so excited. I really was so excited. And it was so wet and the wind was awful and it was only me like there was no one else i was waiting for um uh, somebody who had worked with me in amnesty uh, who was very good at organization which i'm not good at and had languages which i don't to come and work with me so um so i was there sitting and i remember sitting at the desk 
uh, somebody was coming to, to connect up the computer and I was useless. I had done the ECDL uh, computer driving license in the Christmas break because I was useless at technology, I still am. But um, I remember sitting there and saying, well, what am I going to do now? <laughs> and, but I knew what I wanted to do. It was just about taking it bit by bit by bit by bit by bit. And that's, that was the beginning of Frontline. So that was hugely exciting. And that has to be a standout moment. And the first Dublin platform, which honest to God was a minor miracle that it happened at all because there were only two of us organising the Dublin platform. And as well as that, it was, it was the changeover from the pound to the euro. So, and I had it in January, so we had all this extra stuff. I mean, and when I walked out, and I was up till four that night writing my speech for, for, for the platform. I hadn't time to do it before that. So I was in the hotel, in, I had asked them at a reception, could I use their computer? I wrote my speech, it was four o'clock, and uh, uh, the next morning I got up, went in, hope, crossed my fingers, hoped to God uh, it would be okay, and I remember walking out and the place was full. And it was such a great feeling to see all the defenders and all the people who were influential in Ireland, the press, politicians, all of that kind of thing, I said to myself, I think we can do something, you know? And that was a huge moment. And then all along the way, the, the defenders I, I, I've, I've talked about, and uh, the defenders I've met all along the way, the people I've met all along the way, getting the EU guidelines in 2004, that was a, fantastic getting the temporary humanitarian visa scheme in Ireland um, in 2005 that was great these were important building blocks for yes. the protection of human rights defenders because we do need short-term visas in other countries mm. for human rights defenders at risk and, and indeed there's a, a big meeting in, in Spain coming up in a couple of in a few weeks about that but uh, those kind of things but I think overall, it, it's, it's, I still get knocked out <laughs> by human rights defenders. And I think that really is it. Well, as you said, it's the spirit of the people. Mm. Yeah, and it's the people on the ground. Well, Mary, that is, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful journey and hopefully long may you continue to do <laughs> it. <laughs> um, and on behalf of um, the Frontline Defenders and the Smashing Times International Centre for the Arts and Equality, Thank you so much for sharing all that with us um, and it's brilliant work and as I said long may you continue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rights on the Line. Visit www.frontlinedefenders.org to listen to other interesting episodes. Subscribe and share.